If somebody was to offer me 999 days of guaranteed joy, I would have to laugh at their offer, frankly. That's all you can offer? 999 days? In light of what God offers us, and as we see in Isaiah 55, God says, there is no offer that can top mine. As the title of tonight is, Satisfaction Guaranteed. You might as well put a little footnote that says, forever. <laughs> Satisfaction Guaranteed forever. There's, there's no limit to what God's offering us. And there's nothing that can compare. What he wants to have happen will happen. This isn't a marketing gimmick, the gospel. It's not that. God's not saying, well, of all the problem-solving techniques out there, I happen to have the best. If you think his is just the best, you're selling yourself far short. Or you're paying far too much for far too little. What God has to offer us is amazing. And it's guaranteed satisfaction. Um, <laughs> maybe you know what it, this is kind of embarrassing, but maybe you know what it's like to have something you're really into and you just have to share it with somebody. You want everybody else to experience what you've experienced. I feel that way about socks. <laughs> now, I um, had have been having in the winters this toe that just goes numb and turns white. I'm like, Dr. Bravo, what does this mean? And he's like, calm down. You just need to wear good, thick wool socks, and it will eventually go away. Okay. Um, so I start looking for wool socks, and I land upon this one brand, and I'm like, Whoo, wow, wool socks cost a lot. I wasn't used to that shock value, uh, shock whatever, the sticker shock. Um, but I start reading into it, and I'm like, oh, lifetime guarantee. Hmm. What do I have to lose? Lo and behold, I was like, okay, I'll get myself a couple more. And I, lifetime guaranteed, how can you go wrong? So when people talk about socks, and like, oh, I found like, these are awesome socks. I don't know if you know this, but youth love socks. And so when I'm a teacher, um, I've had a lot of conversations with teenagers about socks. It's just something that comes up. So, you know, oh, wait, no, you don't know anything about socks. Let me tell you about these socks. Okay, it's a little embarrassing. So if I can be that enthusiastic about socks because of their lifetime guarantee and the fact that they're frankly comfortable and warm and all that stuff, and keep you cool in the summer, and have this anti-stink technology. <laughs> if, if that can excite us, because maybe I sold you on it too, I don't know. But if that can excite us, what, <laughs> what can God do? I mean, if we, if, if we can say, this is worth the money to put on your foot, what can we say about what God can do for the soul? And not just the soul as if it's this nebulous afterlife thing, but what can he do for you now for, your, for the maximum joy and fulfillment and satisfaction that he promises to us even before death? Yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. 
but the problem I'm experiencing is that we are far too easily satisfied and we're sated, we're stuffing ourselves on appetizers when what we're about to see is that God has a banquet that he's inviting us to. Now, appetizers, they're fun. I don't know how many times you eat out, but I'm always blown away by the appetizer side of the menu. What they can charge for the pre-meal should be a crime. (laughs) I can feed my family for that just by shopping at the store. And that's the appetizer. And then, I mean, of course, though, the appeal and the, oh, it's fun, we'll share it. And it's like, it's all that food that's not necessarily good for you, but it's tasty. It's like, why not? We never make this at home. Let's get it. And that's why they charge so much. But appetizers, like, we, we can so often be uh, sated in our, in our lives, not just at a restaurant. I don't know what you do with appetizers. But in our lives, we, we tend to go for that which is easiest, that which is first offered, that which has the most appeal. And we end up in life spending way too much and getting far too little. Appetizers are not the banquet. That's what we have to see here. Appetizers are meant to stir up your hunger for the banquet. They're not wrong. The appetizers of life are not wrong. But if we sell ourselves short and stop at the appetizer and treat the appetizer as if it was the banquet, we're going to have some health problems. We're going to find ourselves continually dissatisfied with the so-called banquet we've been invited to. And I have a feeling that we have too many Christians in the present world who are satiating themselves on the appetizers and not preparing themselves for the banquet. In other words... We have a lot of things that God's given us to whet our appetite, to stir up a desire and a hunger for his banquet. But we begin to look at these things and forget about the banquet and say, these things are so awesome. These things are great. Examples. The Bible is an appetizer. It is not the banquet. Prayer is an appetizer. It is not the banquet. Sharing your faith with others is an appetizer. It is not the banquet. Going to church, no matter how many times and no matter how good it is, is an appetizer. It is not the banquet. But when we treat something, let's say the Bible, like the banquet itself, rather than something to get us eager for the banquet, when we treat this appetizer as the banquet, you get that weird thing that we've all seen, where you have somebody who's a saint in the scriptures, they know the scriptures, they can teach it fluently, they can explain everything to you, they seem to have it all down, they've got the right answers, they've got the right language, they're a saint in scripture, but they are absolute devils in their desires, the things that they yearn for and do with their lives. And you're like, how, how is this gap possible? It's possible because the Bible has not given them an appetite for the banquet to come. The Bible has become the banquet. And they have turned the means into the ultimate end, the ultimate goal. 
itself. That is idolatry. And if we do not see our faith as a means to the banquet God has for us all, then we are going to start idolaterizing our worship and our Christianity and our faith. You and I have not arrived anywhere. We are on a journey. We are arriving, but we haven't arrived anywhere. Yet, when we begin to settle in as if we've attained, we are sating ourselves on the appetizer to the degree that we have to wonder if the banquet will ever appeal when it appears. That's kind of scary. So before I freak myself out some more, let's go to Isaiah 55. We're going to read the whole chapter in one flow right now, and then we'll catch us up in the context and look at it. Isaiah chapter 55. Come. It invites us. Come, everyone who thirsts. Who's that? Oh, that's me. That's you. That's, that's everyone is thirsting for something. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Covenants are long lasting. This is a long offer. Behold, I make him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of Yahweh your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So people are going to be coming to the Christians and What is going on here? What do you got? Because God has glorified you. That's what it says there in verse 5. Glorified is the word adorn. It, it, it has the, actually in the, as best I can understand this, in the Hebrew it described um, covering the bow. Or the, yeah, the, the bow, the bow, the, the bow, the, the limb of the tree. It's weird when you read it, but don't say it. Now I'm like, how do you say that? Um, but it, it, it's the idea of an ornament or adorning something. It's making it beautiful. It's beautifying. He's dressing his people. He's adorning them. And he's grabbing the attention of the world. Verse 6. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. So here's the call to action. It's, it's given us this, this banquet. And it said that I'm going to make a covenant with the banqueters. And then it's asking us to seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Call now. <laughs> Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to Yahweh that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So come now because this offer of abundant pardon is on the table. How can that be? How can God possibly pardon everything that we've done, everything I've been a participant in, the ways I've shunned him? How can this be? Because in verse 8, 
For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall not go out and no, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for Yahweh, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So what we have seen in Isaiah, and what we're seeing now is the final and climatic end to the second movement. So in the way that a symphony swells and dips and has its quiet parts and its crescendos and it's broken up into movements so is isaiah it's thunderous and dynamic it comes out with a bang in the first movement of the book chapters 1 through 39 then chapters 40 through 55 come into this mellow calm like okay the storm is over comfort my people it's all good there's promises there's hope there's a future And then the third and final movement is going to pick it back up again and finish us off with this high vision of the new heavens and the new earth. It's going to be good. So we're ending the second movement tonight. And what we've seen is that the first movement of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, was all a big test and lecture about whom Israel should trust. So, remember the first five chapters, this was a long time ago, but the first five chapters, I did a very dramatic reading of those chapters, because it read very much like a play. And so we have the voices, and the characters, and we painted that whole drama. And then in chapter 6, we see Isaiah's call, his dramatic call to be a prophet. And in chapter 7 through 12, we see Israel's first test. King Ahaz is being approached by the northern brothers of Israel, and... Um, the Assyrians, and they were going to team up and come invade Judah. And King Ahaz was like, ah, what do I do? I know what I do. I call upon Egypt to come deliver us. And Isaiah's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, actually, God wants us to trust him and not the Egyptians. So here's a sign. You're going to have, a, a virgin's going to conceive and bear a son, and you're going to know that God will deliver us. Okay. Well, Ahaz didn't care. He failed the test. So, because of this failed test, chapters 13 through 36, 35, 35, chapters 13 through 35, all of those chapters were God saying, okay, you guys failed the test, so let's have study hall. 
<laughs> so from chapters 13 to 35, he's teaching them again the lessons of why they should trust him. He says in one lengthy passage, I am king of the whole world. So he calls all the nations to account because he's their judge. And then he shows them visions of the future. And then he gives them two pictures. You can trust the nations and everything will end up like a desert, Isaiah chapter 34, or you can trust me and everything will turn from a desert to a beautiful garden of Eden and there will be a highway and the lame will walk on it and people will be healed and be going on to God's kingship in Zion. So trust me, that's what you get. Trust the world, you get the desert. What do you want? And after this long study hall, this re-lecture session, Israel's like, oh, okay. So they get a second test. And that's where we see King Hezekiah, chapters 36 to 39. He is now confronted with the Assyrians coming up to him. And Isaiah's like, dude, just chill. Don't make the mistake of your grandfather who did not trust in me. Trust in Yahweh. And Hezekiah did. And do you remember what happened to that mighty army of the Assyrians all camped out around Jerusalem, ready to sack the city? Overnight, they disappeared. Slaughtered. And the rest ran. And I I could see Isaiah kind of sidle up to the king the next morning. Like, did you see the headlines? (laughs) Didn't I tell you? So that was how the first movement ends. They fail the first test to trust God. They get re-lectured. Then King Hezekiah passes the test. Temporarily. See, the Babylonians come and say, Oh, King Hezekiah, we want to honor you with a gift. And he's like, ooh, the Babylonians, they're the newest cool kids in town. Let's cozy up to them. And he takes them and shows them all the treasuries. He like basically takes, opens the safe right in front of them. See the code? And shows it all. Like, this is how great we are. And they are taking notes. And like, okay, we'll be back later. And they were. (laughs) They were back later. And Israel falls into exile. The Babylonians take them down and scatter them. And will take most of them to Babylon itself. The second movement of Isaiah seems to be foreseeing that time when they will utterly distrust Yahweh again and they will follow the Babylonians and Isaiah has to write to him and say, okay, it's going to be okay. So we've seen the second movement is full of hope. So now I want to review this movement because I don't think we will appreciate our present chapter if we do not get the story that's being told. The climax of the story makes sense when you know the story, right? So... Isaiah chapter 40 is where the second movement begins. And again, it's with, this, it's with this foresight that Israel will be suffering under Babylonian captivity that Isaiah then says, Isaiah 40 verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is Pardoned, for she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. She has more than suffered her share. So, I'm coming to fix this. Verse 3. And now the Gospels open up with this verse, so please understand as you read it, the Bible says Jesus is the answer to this. 40 verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of Yahweh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, what lies between Babylon and Jerusalem? A big desert. (laughs) There's an invitation to come back home, which Jesus becomes the leader of in the Gospels. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
So not some hidden little path, a highway. Just let the saint come on it. Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and even the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. It'll happen because I have spoken. Okay, sounds good. Wow, there's a path. God is opening up a way in the wilderness to bring us back home, to restore our fortunes. We don't have to be lost and owned and enslaved anymore. But Israel has excuses. They have questions. They're a little shy about God who they think abandoned him. So 40 verse 27, Isaiah is addressing these questions and he says, why, verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from Yahweh, and my right is disregarded by my God. So what we learn is that they were saying, God doesn't even see what we're going through, and he doesn't even care about what's good for us. And Isaiah's like, why are you asking that? He's opening up a way in the wilderness. And to encourage them, he lets them know this, that they're not on their own. God will help them through this path. It's going to be hard, but God will give them wings to do it. So Isaiah 40, verse 28. Isaiah's answer to them is, Have you not known? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So come all people, come on the way through the wilderness, and God will give you wings if you're willing to wait on him. Wow. This is better than Red Bull, that's for sure. So there's a problem, though, and Isaiah addresses this in many parts of this section. We covered them all consecutively, about four weeks worth. It's idolatry. Isaiah is saying, whoa, the only problem is if you try to, if you try to travel this pathway with all these idols on your back, it's going to be hard, and you're going to want to quit. So chapter 46, to me, has the most poetic, picturesque, powerful way of putting it. So you look at chapter 46, and he describes it like this. Bel and Nebo are um, Babylonian gods. It says, Bel bows down and Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. Oh, some gods these are. They travel around because, well, they have to be carried by an animal. And you have to carry them around too. So look at verse 7. They carry it to their shoulders, the idols. They carry it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. And it cannot move from its place, unless you move it, is the implication. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. And so we had a smurf, a life-size smurf up here, about three feet tall, filled with beans. And he didn't say a lot to me as I talked to him. Because that's what an idol does. Might look nice, might get to flavor it, your style, color it the way you want. I picked mahogany because I'm that kind of chap. And I polished it and I, you know, 
bedazzled it and whatever. Um, but it doesn't say anything. It doesn't do anything. So then God answers them and says in verse, uh, chapter 46, verse um, 3, rather than carrying an idol, why don't I carry you? 46.3, listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. I carried you in my tummy. And then when I birthed you, I carried you in my arms. I've never stopped carrying you. Why do you want to carry an idol? Um, Even to your old age, verse 4, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. So far, so good. So, dump the idols, and you'll make it on the way through the wilderness. As an example to us, he gave us the servant. Four chapters on the servant. The servant is the one who will lead us on the way. He will teach you how to dump your idols. Chapter 42 said, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. In other words, he'll be very gentle to the weak. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Remember, God doesn't grow faint. So the servant's coming on behalf of God to help us along the way. And um, Jesus quotes, or the Gospels quote this specific one we just read and applies it to Jesus and says, see, here's the servant. He's leading us on the way and he's going to help us. He's going to carry us. Um, So that was 42. There was um, chapter 49, we saw the servant. There was chapter 50, we saw the servant. And then chapter, this was last week, chapter 53, we saw the servant who very graphically will have to suffer And we learn that God's plan to carry us through the wilderness to make his way is absurd. So you can listen to last week's message to hear um, the absurd story of good news. And Lewis said, it's precisely because Christianity is not the sort of thing a human would make up that I believe in it. So now we come to the climatic finish, okay? Chapter 55. So the question we were left with In chapter 53 is the servant is going to suffer and he's going to die. Is that the end of the servant? No. Chapter 54 and 55, we're not going to cover 54 tonight, but 54 and 55 tell us no. In fact, because of the servant's death, and because it was hinting at his resurrection by saying he's glorified because of his death, because of that, his glory of coming out of this death and coming back into the world and coming back to life, he's actually going to, with him, bring all things out of the dead and bring all things to life. And so in the chapter that we just read, we see the invitation to this resurrection feast. The, I am the winner. I've done it. I am the one who has brought God's way to the earth and led humans back to God. Let's eat. Let's have a banquet because that's the way it was always supposed to be. God and humans rejoicing together over his creation. But we said, eh, we'll do it our way. And it's been a long story to get us back. But now we're seeing the result of the servant's work. There is a banquet set before us. 
And it's not just us who are invited. I hope you caught this in the passage. It's powerful. In verses 12 and 13, it's also the creation itself that is being pulled toward this resurrection, this new life, this banquet experience. Because Romans 8 tells us that the creation is also groaning and waiting and longing for the revelation of the children of God. Why? Here's what Paul says in Romans 8.19. Romans 8.19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? For the creation was subjected to futility, to emptiness. By the way, that's the same words that the prophets use about idolatry. Futility, emptiness, nothingness. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It wasn't their fault, in other words. But because of him, Adam, who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The creation is groaning because Adam brought the fall, humanity brought the fall, but the creation knows that when the sons of God are revealed, so it too will be set free from its captivity. So what does Isaiah, how does Isaiah say this? He says it like this, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace and the mountains and hills before you shall break forth into singing. The mountains and hills are going to be excited for us coming to the banquet. They're going to be applauding and greeting us saying, Yay, guys, you did it. You, you followed the path through the wilderness. Hurrah. And not just the mountains and the hills. The trees of the field shall clap their hands. So the hills are hymning to us and the trees are giving us a hand or a leafy hand. <laughs> They're clapping. And instead of the thorn. So now the, the byproducts of our rebellion thorn, briar, thistle, you have your verbiage. They're being reversed. Instead of the thorn, you have the cypress tree. Instead of the briar, you have the myrtle tree. There's a transformation. There's a healing of the land. We saw this hinted in Isaiah 35 when God said he's going to take the desert and he's going to bring streams into the desert and he's going to heal the land and he's going to bring a lot of goodness to the world. So Isaiah is just bringing all of this to its fulfillment. We've seen hints of this already. Isaiah chapter 11. There is the root. uh, Wait, something like that. The, uh, hold on, hold on. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Remember, Israel's going to be lopped down. The nation's going to fall. But from that stump, a little shoot is going to come out because the root is still good. From the stump of Jesse, David is from the stump of Jesse. David is the son of Jesse and is going to bear fruit. And then it goes on to tell us that the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard lay down with the young goat and the calf and the lion shall, uh, and, and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them, the cow. And it goes forth and just tells us that the creation itself will be different. In Isaiah chapter 27, we had a hint of this coming feast and it said, in the days to come, Isaiah 27, 6, in the days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. That is not the passage I wanted, although that worked. 
uh, 25, Isaiah 25, 6. I was panicking because I knew I highlighted it and I saw nothing highlighted on that page. I was like, okay, maybe it's after this verse. 25, 6. On this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. So we're seeing this feast was already hinted at. And, verse 7, he will swallow up on this mountain. This is very poetic here. What are they eating? He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Glad you all came to the banquet. Let's put this one to rest. (laughs) Eats it. And then it says, Yahweh will wipe away tears from faces. He'll take away the reproach from people. That, obviously, we see in Revelation. He's going to wipe away tears from everyone's eyes. So the feast was hinted at. And now we see it, chapter 55. The invitation is finally here. Come, everyone who thirsts. You who have been eagerly dieting on appetizers, why? The feast is here. Look at it. Observe it. Yearn for it. Crave it. God wants us to crave him. As C.S. Lewis has said in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, God does not find our desires too strong. He finds our desires too weak. We settle for half-hearted desires, thinking that sex and drink and all the other pleasures and possessions and pride of life, all of that is somehow where it's at. Feast on that. Friends, those are appetizers. I talked about religious stuff being appetizers, but those are appetizers too. Joy and pleasure are gifts from God, but when we turn that joy and that pleasure into the ultimate thing that we're striving for, we are stopping ourselves too short. We are on the path in the wilderness. Ooh, the things of God are great, but then we stop and say, this is it! I made it! I'm at the banquet! And God's like, you are like 10 steps into the path through the wilderness, and the banquet's over there. That, frankly, is what sin is. When we look at sinners in the world, they have the same desires we do. They have simply stopped short and called the appetizer the banquet. But I trust and hope and pray that we haven't committed the same falling short by choosing to call our own faith the banquet, when really this is just the path getting us to the banquet. I'm not satisfied yet. I'm a lot more satisfied than I was 10 years ago. But if this is it, a little disappointed. I want my money back. (laughs) But that is, though, however, it's inviting us to the banquet, but the point of this passage is that that satisfaction is guaranteed. That if you will just keep on coming through the way, when you get to this banquet, I guarantee... Now, I wonder, I'm totally hypothetical, theorizing, I'm not finding the right word, but I'm just throwing it out there. Let's say you go on the journey, you get to heaven, and you're like, yeah, hell looks better. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, I'm just guessing, God might say, okay, fine. Satisfaction guaranteed. You're not satisfied? You can take the other way. It's a pretty good uh, offer. Uh, by the way, uh, let me rant for a second. Um, I'm just frankly bummed out when I hear Christians talking like, yeah, we don't get to do those things. Like, I follow Jesus, so I just don't do that anymore. 
And it's this attitude of like, well, yeah, everybody better burn because they're enjoying themselves and I'm sacrificing to be a Christian. <laughs> I don't know. I, I had this awkward moment. Um, remember when the debate camp, the youth camp was here and they invited me to do one of their chapels. So um, <laughs> the introduction was awkward. It's always weird when you go somewhere else and the people introduce you. You never know what they're going to say about you. And so, remember how I introduced Gary that one week, Gary, and I, and I said, like, I don't know, I said something, and he, he said, apparently I've been born before dirt or something. I don't know what he said, but I was like, oh, that's not what I meant. But he, um, he introduced me that night, and I think he got even with me. I don't know. But he said, um, this guy, man, he just, like, from his youth, he's been doing it right. He's been following God. He's been pure, blah, blah. He's like, and I'm, like, standing there, like, looking at all these kids, like, feeling awkward, like, yep, here I am, Saint McCulloch. <laughs> We'll have candles up here later and you can offer incense. Like, I was just feeling weird. So he says all that. So then I just, you know, I'm like, okay, this wasn't my first statement I want to say. I want, I, I hate like the whole intro things and like without just getting to like say what the message is about. But so I had to just take the time to be like, um, just so you know, I didn't suffer in my path to be a saint. Like, listen, students, listen, kids, I have zero regrets about the path I chose. That's our God. And when he tells us that there's a path through the wilderness and he wants us to walk on it, it's for our satisfaction. It's for our good. He's trying to get us to his ultimate, the ultimate fulfillment of being with him in his banquet. Right, so my rant. Um, I, I, I get bummed out when Christians talk like they had to give up so many things. Really? I really don't think you get it. I think you've turned your faith into a religion of appetizers. Yeah, I would be bummed out too. Because at least the world knows how to make the appetizers glow and blow up and dazzle and sparkle. (laughs) But so God is inviting us to something more. And he's saying satisfaction guaranteed. This is how he's saying it. It's in verses 8 through 11. So we'll go back over that so you can see how he's saying it. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. It's like what you think is good. Well, just try to imagine a little more. Okay. Um, neither are your ways, my ways declares Yahweh for as the heavens are higher than the earth. So my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And now he gives us an example. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, it's a very obvious illustration but it's powerful when's the last time you saw the snow begin to fall and right before it hits the ground it's like yay you know what let's let summer keep going yeah what do you guys think and all the other snowflakes like yeah more summer the groundhog was scared of his shadow anyways I don't know how that works but then the snow says retreat retreat and it goes back up and you're like amazing it snowed but the ground is dry right we've never seen that It doesn't happen that way. So as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth. So in other words, God sends it and it happens. Giving seed. So it brings forth stuff, seed to the sower, bread to the eater. So it comes down and it produces fruit. It produces something useful. Verse 11. He's liking it now to his word. So shall my word be. It's like rain. It's like snow. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. 
In other words, the snow and rain fall and it brings forth crops and we're satisfied. He's saying my word goes out and it brings forth crops. It doesn't go out and like, Mir. oh, that didn't work. It brings forth crops. So it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. Hmm. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form. It was void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Hmm. We should probably turn on the lights. What do you guys think? Yeah, let's turn on the lights. Let there be light. No, that's not what I meant. No, no, not elephants. Too early. Light. He spoke and what he intended came into being. This is what Isaiah is saying, is when God speaks, what he intends to create, what he intends to happen, happens. So it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Okay. So if God is inviting us to a banquet, if he's saying that there's going to be this restoration, this healing, that my servant's going to lead you on the way through the wilderness, and you will get to your destination in due time. When he says that, he is saying satisfaction guaranteed or you get hell back. He's offering us something we cannot refuse. Because even if you gave me the 999 years of guaranteed joy, be like, there's a problem with your offer. It's not eternal. And besides, your idea of joy might not be my idea of joy. But God's ways are higher than ours. We can trust that he's giving us something, like we said last week, too good not to be true. It's too good not to be true. Even the creation is going to come out and celebrate with us. That is how good this word is going to be. So... Um, you can look at Revelation 19 and see the feast portrayed there in Revelation, the wedding supper of the Lamb. You can um, look at Luke chapter 14 and see where Jesus talks about a wedding supper as well. But the people, and this is our caution, the people say, eh. like, yeah, oh, I'm going. Oh, wait, no, I just bought six oxen. I need to take them for a test drive. Or, oh, I just got married. I, you know, wives are expensive. Um, or, sorry, um, They all make excuses and don't come. So here, what we can do to keep us on the path, and rather than stopping saying, oh, we've made it, the appetizer's the banquet, and rather to keep going, is I think I just want to take this whole thing about God's word accomplishing what he wants it to accomplish. I I just want us to sit in that. And to say, okay, here you go, guys, God's word. Now, first of all, it's kind of cool that Jesus was the word and he came down and accomplished what God had sent him to do. Right? That's kind of cool too. But, but here we have God's word. This is not it. That's, that's a lot for me to say because I've devoted a lot of years of the time of my life to this Bible. But this is not it. This is part of our way to get there. But this is not the feast. It might satisfy me. It might feel like a feast sometimes, but this isn't it. These are appetizers here. What I want to do is I want to get into the word, not as the banquet itself, but I want to begin to read it like a menu of the banquet. 
So in other words, if I'm reading it like a menu, I get to look at it and say, wow, that's what God's going to serve up. Let's keep going because this is not that. Well, that's what God is into. Well, that's how he's going to do it. Well, this is the desires. This is what his kingdom stands for. This is what his reign and his rule look like. This is what it is. When I read a menu, how many times have you done this? You go into a restaurant thinking you know what you want. Then you see the menu or the special or the picture or the description. And you change your mind. Your desire changes I desired this, now I desire that. I believe if we keep reading God's word and letting his word come to us to accomplish that which it was sent to accomplish, if we get this inside of us and take a look at God's menu, it will and can change our appetite. So that we are no longer satisfied with appetizers, but we are yearning for the banquet. So let's read the menu. Let's get acquainted with the king's cuisine. What is he into? I better get into it too if I want to be at the banquet. Can you imagine getting like, is it gluten free? Oh, no thanks. <laughs> um, it's just a joke. Obviously, his food will be, yeah, okay. But we want to get used to the king's cuisine because it can redirect our appetites. So maybe that's where we are, like our appetites are stuck, they're in a rut, we're just used to the same old, and it's just not cutting it out anymore, and you know guys, here it is, let's get to see what the king is cooking up, and start to hunger, smell it, savor it, salivate for it, it's coming, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money, come buy and eat. So Lord, I pray that you tonight would indeed change our appetite and change our desire, that we would yearn for your banquet, for your kingdom, for your kingship.